0: The year is 1960. Dwight D. Eisenhower is president of the United States. Elvis is the king of rock and roll. The most popular movie in the theaters is Ben-Hur. The most popular book is To Kill a Mockingbird. The Andy Griffith Show premiered its first episode. Gas is 25 cents a gallon. The year marked the end of the 1950s, a time many Americans would later remember with a sense of nostalgia. It was an era of relative peace and prosperity. The men and women who grew up during the Great Depression and helped defeat Nazism and fascism in World War II had gotten married, settled down, and started families. America had a booming middle class. But it was also a time that foreshadowed great change in America. In the South, more and more African-Americans and civil rights activists were challenging the region's practice of segregation, holding sit-ins at restaurants. Nationwide, the FDA approved the first oral contraceptive pill. 90% of American households now have televisions, bringing world events right into their own homes. These developments represented the beginning of dramatic change that would alter the social fabric of America for the rest of the decade. The change was not limited to the culture. Americans also felt a sense of unease when it came to international events. Since the end of World War II, 15 years earlier, the United States had risen to become the most prosperous and powerful nation in the world, as well as the leader of the free world. It was the international beacon of freedom. But the country was also engaged in a global struggle against the communist world led by the Soviet Union. Both superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, dominated the geopolitical landscape and competed for influence over various regions throughout the world. Looming over this conflict was the specter of nuclear war. Both nations tried to outdo each other in terms of power and influence, but feared that if they pushed each other too far, nuclear Armageddon might be the result. Presidents Harry Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower led the nation through the first decade and a half of this conflict, this Cold War. In our previous episodes, we covered their efforts to confront communism and the fine line they had to walk between containing Soviet expansion and preventing nuclear war. It was a delicate balance which required exquisite statesmanship and nerves of steel. In the case of Dwight D. Eisenhower, his long experience as the victorious general during World War II and as the commander-in-chief of the North American Treaty Organization, or NATO for short, convinced many Americans that he could be trusted to maintain that balance, that he would act responsibly with the nuclear codes and with America's security. But Eisenhower was about to leave office. At almost 70 years old, he was already the oldest president the country ever had up to that point, and was at the tail end of his two terms in the White House. In his place, America chose a man who, in many ways, couldn't have been any more different from the great World War II general. He was a 43-year-old senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. When Eisenhower was first elected eight years earlier, he had been on the national stage for years. He was a tested and proven statesman. In 1960, Kennedy was still the junior senator for Massachusetts. His seven years in the U.S. Senate and his previous six years in the House had been unremarkable, He had no major pieces of legislation to his name. He came from a wealthy and politically connected family, but some felt that he was nothing more than a rich, opportunistic playboy. He had made headlines in 1958 for authoring a book of short biographies describing acts of bravery and integrity by eight U.S. senators, titled Profiles in Courage. The book won the Pulitzer Prize, but there's still debate today as to how much of the book he actually wrote. During his campaign, he said only in vague terms about what he would do if he were president. But when Kennedy had a pulpit, he could speak in ways that inspired millions, in ways that no other prominent American politician could. He was youthful, articulate, handsome, and dynamic. He embraced the role of cold warrior, and he claimed that Eisenhower had failed to lead the nation effectively in the struggle against communism. He had been a war hero in World War II, commanding a patrol boat that was struck by a Japanese destroyer. He heroically led his men through shark-infested waters and was later cited for heroism. His family had a long record of success. His father had been a prominent member of Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. His grandfather had been the mayor of Boston. He had a beautiful wife who was just 30 years old and two very young, beautiful children. In 1960, the American people were given a choice between Kennedy and President Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon. Kennedy won in one of the narrowest elections in American history. In doing so, the American people were truly turning a page. Americans loved Eisenhower, but they were entering a new decade, and they were craving what they believed to be more energetic leadership. In JFK, They saw a man who they believed could infuse their nation with energy. They entrusted Kennedy with their nation's future. In doing so, they were giving the nuclear codes to a largely untested leader, expecting him to walk the fine line between containing the Soviets and preventing nuclear war. How he handled this awesome responsibility is the subject of this episode of This American President. Of all the modern presidents, let's say since FDR, John F. Kennedy is one of the most familiar. His origin story is one of the most well-known, so I won't get too much into it. For a brief rundown, he was born to a wealthy Catholic family, the second of nine children. He was a sickly boy and a bit of a class clown, always getting into trouble for pranks and hijinks. In contrast, his older brother Joe was the star of the show, and the one their father was grooming to be president one day. JFK, or Jack as his family called him, was always coming up second to Joe. Joe was the better athlete and got better grades. The Kennedys went to the best schools and lived in luxury, but their father Joe Sr. instilled a sense of hyper-competitiveness in his children. Although he was a lazy student, Jack developed an interest in foreign policy, and when he went to Harvard, even authored a best-selling book, Why England Slept, critiquing the United Kingdom's foreign policy in the run-up to World War II. In the war, Jack became a hero, as I said earlier, but his brother Joe also served his country in that war. He was a pilot and was killed during a dangerous mission. When that happened, the course of Jack's life was altered. Their father, Joe Sr., shifted all his hopes for the presidency to his second son, who was still in his late 20s. Joe Sr. later said, quote, I got Jack into politics. I was the one. I told him Joe was dead and that it was therefore his responsibility to run for Congress. He didn't want to. He felt he didn't have the ability, and he still feels that way. But I told him he had to. Jack entered the realm of politics. He was elected to Congress in 1946 to represent Massachusetts. In 1952, he won a surprise victory against Republican Henry Cabot Lodge and became the junior senator from Massachusetts. There are two things that the American people have learned about JFK since his death that they didn't know at the time. The first is his prolific sex life. I won't dwell on this topic. It's familiar to virtually everyone. It's widely accepted as fact that JFK routinely cheated on his wife. The fact that these affairs weren't exposed during his presidency seems to be the result of a lot of luck and his popularity with the media. I will only add that there is legitimate concern about the incredible risks he took in his private life. There is more than enough evidence to show that he had at least one affair with a woman linked to the mob, and another with a woman suspected of being a Soviet spy. These are remarkable facts given the fact that he served as Commander-in-Chief during the height of the Cold War. It is almost certain that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had incriminating information about JFK, and it is likely that he confronted him about it. There is also no evidence that these affairs impacted his performance as president, nor do we know for sure if anyone blackmailed him, but for some, the risks he took during the height of the Cold War are simply unsettling. The second thing the American people have learned is JFK's health. More and more evidence has come out about the dire state of his health, It is widely known that Kennedy had a bad back and screwed up adrenal glands, a condition known as Addison's disease. He also had digestive problems, asthma, and urinary bladder and prostate gland infections. He was near death multiple times in his life. Scholar James Giglio notes that JFK took seven prescription medications every day, plus sleep sedatives. He took procaine injections to relieve his intense back pain and amphetamines for his adrenal deficiency. These were prescribed by a doctor, Max Jacobson, who many considered to be a quack. The steroids JFK took for his Addison's disease caused his face to puff up. You can tell if you watch his first debate with Nixon in 1960. It was a well-known secret among those specializing in Addison's that JFK had the disease. They could tell by just looking at him. It's very likely that many of these prescriptions increased Kennedy's sexual appetite. Historians have speculated that his lifelong health issues gave him a sense of fatalism. He had been near death several times. In his mind, the feeling that he was destined for a short life may have contributed to the sense that he had to make the most of his years, whether that meant racing to the top of the political ladder or conquering as many sexual partners as possible. Sometimes JFK's back was so messed up that he had to use crutches, and one witness during his presidency said they saw him being lowered into a wheelchair, and another said that he couldn't lean down or pick up a cup of tea set on a low table. His brother Bobby once said that, quote, At least one half of the days that he spent on this earth were days of intense physical pain. His aides and close friends were amazed and inspired at his stamina and the fact that he never complained about his health issues. It's fascinating that, while JFK was about the sickliest of all our modern presidents, he successfully cultivated an image of youth and vigor. Again, part of this is probably attributable to the friendly media and his youthful looks, but historians note that, for all of his health issues, Kennedy did not allow them to impair his performance as president. The Kennedy years left an indelible imprint on the collective consciousness of the American people. They remember the 1960 presidential debates where Kennedy faced Nixon, appearing tan, cool, and confident, while Nixon was sweaty and brooding. They remember his glamorous family, as well as the controversies and tragedies that engulfed their lives. The Kennedys were both loved and hated. In a PBS documentary on the family, the narrator says that, for many Americans, they were what they aspired to be, but to others... They were a tribe who played by their own rules and got away with it. They were descended from Irish immigrants. Their father, Joe Sr., was a ruthless businessman who was a wolf of Wall Street in the 20s and had a chip on his shoulder because of the bigotry he encountered from being both Irish and Catholic. Many historians believe that he was a bootlegger during Prohibition. Joe Sr. also dabbled in producing movies in Hollywood. At one point, He was said to have had an affair with one of the great Hollywood actresses of the time, Gloria Swanson, possibly setting a pattern for his sons. In a very disturbing incident, Joe Sr. had one of his daughters, Rosemary, lobotomized for reasons that historians still debate. Some believe it was because of perceptions within the family that she was slow mentally. She had also suffered from seizures, and at times through temper tantrums. The lobotomy was a disaster leaving Rosemary with the mental capacity of a toddler. She spent the rest of her life institutionalized, shunned by the family, and hidden from the public. The family spent decades hiding the fact that she was lobotomized, claiming she was either a recluse or born mentally deficient. It would be the first of many tragedies for the family. JFK's mother, Rose Fitzgerald, was the daughter of the mayor of Boston. Their marriage united the two prominent political families in Massachusetts. JFK's younger brother, Robert, who went by Bobby and was given the moniker RFK, was intensely loyal to Kennedy, to the point of being called ruthless towards anyone that got in his or his brother's way. Bobby had graduated from the University of Virginia with a law degree, had managed JFK's successful Senate campaign in 1953, and had made a name for himself by fighting organized crime as legal counsel for a congressional committee. Their youngest brother, Teddy, had been expelled from Harvard because he had cheated on his Spanish exam, but was allowed to re-enter. Later, Teddy went to law school, but was charged with reckless driving and driving without a license. Still, Teddy managed JFK's successful re-election campaign in 1958, which gave him a bit of legitimacy. JFK's sister, Patricia, was married to Peter Lawford, a famous actor who was a member of the famous Rat Pack. He counted his friends stars like Frank Sinatra, As a young congressman, JFK dated the beautiful actress Jean Tierney, and some say he dated Grace Kelly. As president, he had affairs with actresses like Angie Dickinson and, most famously, Marilyn Monroe. Regardless of how you feel about the Kennedys, it's not hard to find them fascinating. Fascinating for their glamorous lifestyle, their triumphs and tragedies, for their deeds and misdeeds. But all of this drama sometimes overshadows the reality of who JFK was and what he stood for. His youth and rhetoric make him a favorite president among many Americans. Millions around the world remain enamored with Kennedy and his family. They take inspiration from his speeches, and they are fascinated by his life story. But the question remained, was JFK more style than substance? Was there anything beyond the charisma What was his vision for America, especially given the dangerous geopolitical situation? JFK's entire political career took place in the context of the Cold War. As I said earlier, he fashioned himself as a Cold Warrior, as someone who believed that the Soviets were the greatest threat to freedom and the United States had a moral imperative to stop them. This is sometimes forgotten by many of his present-day defenders. He portrayed himself as Unambiguously pro American and anti communist. During the 1960 presidential election, when he debated Vice President Richard Nixon, Kennedy portrayed the Cold War in stark terms. In the
2: election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln said the question was whether this nation could exist half slave or half free. In the election of 1960, and with the world around us, the question is whether the world will exist half slave or half free whether it will move in the direction of freedom, in the direction of the road that we are taking, or whether it will move in the direction of slavery. I think it will depend in great measure upon what we do here in the United States, on the kind of society that we build, on the kind of strength that we maintain. We discussed tonight domestic issues, but I would not want that to be any implication to be given that this does not involve directly our struggle with Mr. Khrushchev for survival. Mr. Khrushchev is in New York, and he maintains the communist offensive throughout the world because of the productive power of the Soviet Union itself. The Chinese communists have always had a large population, but they are important and dangerous now because they are mounting a major effort within their own country. The kind of country we have here, the kind of society we have, the kind of strength we build in the United States will be the defense of freedom. If we do well here, if we meet our obligations, if we're moving ahead, then I think freedom will be
0: secure around the world. If we fail, then freedom fails. To Kennedy, communism meant slavery, and American democracy and capitalism meant freedom. To him, the cause of America and the cause of liberty around the world were one and the same. It's really not that much different from what you heard from Ronald Reagan years later. John F. Kennedy's most famous speech was his inaugural address, delivered on January 20th, 1961. Most people remember his grand call to public service.
3: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
0: That one line inspired many young Americans to enter politics and government service. But what many people forget about the speech is its unapologetic defense of American values and its exhortation for America to actively lead on the global stage. Kennedy connected America's founding principles with liberation movements abroad, saying,
3: And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God.
0: He declared that the United States would not allow the cause of human rights to falter.
3: And unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed, and to which we are committed today at home and around the world.
0: He committed America, and specifically his generation, to the worldwide defense of freedom.
3: In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it.
0: he declared that the United States would be willing to pay the highest price possible to see freedom spread around the world.
3: Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty.
0: He warned America's allies about appeasing tyrants. It was the lesson the world learned in the run-up to World War II, when the Western European nations attempted to placate Hitler in the hopes that he wouldn't continue with his aggression. Kennedy was telling the American people that he did not intend to appease tyrants. In this context, he meant the communists.
3: But we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom. And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside.
0: That isn't all he said in his speech. He also mentioned the United Nations as, quote, our last best hope in an age where the instruments of war have far outpaced the instruments of peace. He affirmed the need to negotiate with America's adversaries and to forge arms control agreements. But the vast majority of the speech was a call to active, even aggressive American leadership in the world. It explicitly recognized the Cold War as a struggle between freedom and tyranny and identified the United States as being on the morally right side of that struggle. Those who view the speech merely as a call to public service miss Kennedy's larger point. JFK's words reject those who question whether America plays a positive role in the world, or whether it should play an active role at all, i.e. that it should, quote, mind its own business. John F. Kennedy was obsessed with foreign policy, at the expense of domestic policy historians often categorize individual presidents by whether they focus more on foreign policy or domestic policy. JFK's vice president, Lyndon Johnson, would later be considered a domestic policy-centered president, especially with his focus on the Great Society programs. Kennedy was unambiguously a foreign policy president. When talking about a foreign policy crisis, he once said, and I'm going to use sanitized language here, quote, it really is true that foreign affairs is the only important issue for a president. Who gives a crap if the minimum wage is $1.15 or $1.25 in comparison to something like this?
4: Hello, everyone.
0: In our previous episodes, we covered Presidents Truman and Eisenhower and their approaches to the Cold War. Their strategies differed in many ways, but basically, both of them adhered to a containment policy against the Soviet Union. They wanted to stop the Soviets from expanding around the world. We talked about Eisenhower and his New Look policy, and there were two pillars to his policy, both interrelated. The first was on spending. Ike was obsessed with maintaining the fiscal health of the country. The Cold War was expensive. It was a classic arms race on the grandest scale. When the Soviets built a tank, America built a better tank, and they responded by building an even yet better tank. When they built a plane, a ship, a missile, etc., etc., America responded, and then they did. There was a temptation on both sides to try to outmatch each other. But Eisenhower felt that this was absurd. He believed that this would lead both sides to spend themselves into oblivion. He believed that defense spending took away from the natural flow of the economy. In his words, Every
5: gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000
0: population. For Eisenhower, Part of winning the Cold War wasn't just about matching the other side, but finding a way not to bankrupt ourselves in the process. So rather than trying to match the Soviets, he focused his defense policy on finding more cost-effective ways to deter the Soviets. He cut the army budget and reduced America's conventional forces. But then the question remains, how did he deter the Soviets? Well, that was the second pillar of the Eisenhower policy. It was called massive retaliation. In essence, Eisenhower relied heavily on America's growing nuclear stockpile to deter any aggressive actions by the Soviets. His administration gave the impression, time and again, that it was willing to use nuclear weapons. The ironic thing is that while this policy was geared mainly at deterring the Soviets, it was used most clearly in Eisenhower's crises involving communist China. During his presidency, the United States found itself dealing with the People's Republic of China in three crises— The first was during negotiations to end the Korean War, and the latter two involved Taiwan. In each of these incidents, Eisenhower signaled to the Chinese that he was considering using nuclear weapons. It's not clear what the impact of these threats were, but in the case of Korea, the Chinese ended up agreeing to a ceasefire, and in the latter two cases, they backed down. There were many critics of this policy, from Army Chief of Staff Maxwell Taylor to up-and-coming scholar Henry Kissinger, and also then-Senator John F. Kennedy. The obvious question was whether this threat was credible. After all, the threat itself raised the question, was the United States really willing to escalate to nuclear war in the event of any crisis? If so, then we would have a nuclear war on our hands, or at least the fallout, both literally and figuratively, of using such a weapon. If Eisenhower was bluffing, wasn't he vulnerable to being exposed? Might America's credibility be damaged with his bluff being called? These were reasonable questions, and President Eisenhower faced them throughout his presidency, but he never wavered. He maintained that massive retaliation was the only way to keep the peace, to prevent war. He felt that there was no middle ground when it came to war, that a conventional war would get America stuck in inconclusive conflicts like the one in Korea the only realistic option for war with the communists was nuclear. Eisenhower felt that putting nuclear war on the table was only an acknowledgement of reality, and he also felt that threatening nuclear war would make it less likely that America would get involved in any war at all. And it's probably fair to say that Eisenhower was one of the few men in the world that could have bluffed his way on the issue. He was the great hero of World War II, There was no question about his toughness on the international stage. He had the credibility to make those threats in a way no one else had. I mentioned in our Eisenhower episodes that regardless of how one feels about this policy, it's hard to argue with results. Eisenhower was able to maintain peace and prosperity for eight years in the face of multiple Cold War crises. This type of thinking, massive retaliation, contributed to a very black-and-white view of the world. There were two sides in this, the United States versus the Communists. There were a number of nations that attempted to maintain neutrality, to be non aligned. Eisenhower and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, believed that this was nonsense. If you weren't with us, you were against us. John F. Kennedy also was committed to containment and was an avowed anti communist, but he approached containment from a different perspective. During the campaign, Kennedy accused Eisenhower and Nixon for a failure of leadership for passively allowing the Soviets to get ahead.
3: I believe that this is a great country, but I do believe it can be a greater country. This is a powerful country, but I think it can be a more powerful country. My chief disagreement with the Republicans in this campaign is that they have had too little faith in the development of this country. I think we can do better. I think that there is a direct relationship between the deterioration of our relative standing in the world in the last few years and the fact that we haven't moved ahead here at home fast enough.
0: Kennedy felt that Eisenhower hadn't fully utilized all of America's capabilities and resources to counter the Soviets, and that also meant fiscal resources. Kennedy, a Democrat in an era where the New Deal was still popular, wasn't wedded to Eisenhower's focus on limited spending. If anything, he felt Eisenhower wasn't adequately funding America's defenses, specifically our conventional forces. Unlike Eisenhower, Kennedy felt the nation could, and in fact should, spend much more on its defense. Not spending more was a waste of our potential. Remember when he said in his inaugural address that we would, quote, pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, to assure the survival and success of liberty? I guess it comes down to a classic case between a fiscal conservative like Eisenhower, who felt that government spending took away from the economy, and Kennedy, who felt that government spending could stimulate good outcomes. Part of fully utilizing America's potential and paying any price for liberty Also meant countering the Soviets in as many areas as possible, not just militarily or economically, but also scientifically and in terms of national prestige. This is where the space program comes in. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched the first satellite, Sputnik. Although the United States had a much stronger economy than the Soviet Union did and had a nuclear arsenal that dwarfed Moscow's, people felt that Sputnik proved the Communists were ahead technologically. Americans believed that if the Soviets could put a satellite in orbit, they could also put a warhead in orbit and threaten America. Eisenhower thought this was alarmism, but he had a hard time convincing the American people. The Soviets followed up Sputnik by launching the first living being, a dog, into space. And then, in April of 1961, at the start of Kennedy's presidency, the Soviets achieved another spectacular milestone. They sent Yuri Gagarin into space and back the first human being to ever leave the surly bonds of Earth. The Soviet space achievements fed into Kennedy's claim during the campaign that the United States was standing still. The new space agency, NASA, was struggling to send anything into orbit. Its rockets were blowing up. But Kennedy was willing to wager on America's long-term ingenuity. It's why, in May of 1961, he announced that America would go to the moon by the end of the decade. It was a gutsy move, since America was behind in the space race, but he had accepted the Soviet's challenge for supremacy in this new arena and was willing to spend billions of dollars to achieve it. It was yet another reflection of Kennedy's willingness to pay any price to assure the success of the free world. Space race aside, the competition in the Cold War always came back to defense spending. Kennedy believed that spending would provide more options for deterrence. Whereas Eisenhower believed that deterrence would best be achieved by a blanket threat to use nuclear weapons, Kennedy felt that this exposed America to having our bluff called. He felt that it would be more credible if America had more options at different levels, a theory called flexible response. So JFK began a massive military buildup, which included boosting America's conventional forces as well as special operations and counterinsurgency capabilities. Kennedy pushed for a 15% increase in the defense budget. Historian John Lewis Gaddis wrote quote, Kennedy, possessed of an economic rationale for disregarding costs, placed his emphasis on minimizing risks by giving the United States sufficient flexibility to respond without either escalation or humiliation. This would require a capacity to act at all levels, ranging from diplomacy through covert action guerrilla operations, conventional and nuclear war. This was a major departure from Eisenhower's deterrent policy. For Kennedy, deterring the enemy at multiple levels was far more credible because he felt that no one really believed America was willing to go to nuclear war over the smallest of conflicts. Kennedy felt that it would lower the risk of provoking a nuclear war by removing Eisenhower's blanket threat to use nukes. America would be relying less on nuclear weapons as a deterrent. Now don't get me wrong, this didn't mean Kennedy thought America should remove nuclear weapons from its deterrent completely, but he did mean to raise the threshold before America would consider their use. One major difference between Eisenhower and Kennedy was their stature on the world stage. Eisenhower could credibly threaten nuclear war in a way his successors couldn't, Though Kennedy had World War II service, his was nowhere near the same level as Eisenhower's. Historian Evan Thomas wrote quote, Eisenhower's approach only worked for Eisenhower. Kennedy and Johnson could not have pulled it off even if they wanted to. They lacked the credibility that was uniquely Eisenhower's. They had not liberated Europe or made enormous life and death decisions on the battlefield the way he did. And since JFK didn't have that same stature, he struggled mightily to establish credibility. He would find himself, time and again, trying to prove that he wasn't soft on the communists. The last aspect of Kennedy's thinking I want to cover is his view of the rest of the world. Eisenhower saw the world as more black and white and believed that the rest of the world had to choose either between the United States and the Soviets. Just as President George W. Bush said to countries that you are either with America or the terrorists, Eisenhower felt that you were either with America or the communists. Just as Bush's critics and opponents felt that this oversimplified the world and alienated would-be allies, Kennedy believed that Eisenhower's policies did the same in the fight against communism. Therefore, he felt the United States needed to be more responsive to the aspirations of the third world. Now, this wasn't because of some bleeding-heart desire to make every other country's dreams come true. It was part of Kennedy's Cold War strategy. Kennedy came into office at a time when colonialism was retreating worldwide. Between 1945 and 1960, three dozen new states in Asia and Africa became either officially independent from their European colonial rulers or something close to it. The United States and the Soviet Union vied for their loyalty. To secure that loyalty, Kennedy felt America couldn't force them to make a decision between us and the Soviets. Instead, Kennedy wanted to appeal to them in some way to incline them to supporting America. In other words, we had to align our policies with the nationalist aspirations of those in the third world. In a speech on October 12, 1960, in the middle of the campaign, Kennedy discussed African independence movements, saying, quote, "...we have lost ground in Africa because we have neglected and ignored the needs and aspirations of the African people, because we have failed to foresee the emergence of Africa." and ally ourselves with the causes of independence. Compare this to how Eisenhower overthrew a few third-world governments when they weren't considered sufficiently anti-communist, which we covered in our previous episode. What Kennedy's new approach meant in terms of policy was something akin to what Harry Truman, also a Democrat, did with the Marshall Plan. Essentially, America would use its economic strength to aid third-world countries to develop their own economies and social infrastructure. This is where you get things like the Peace Corps and the Alliance for Progress. This is where you get the creation of the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID for short, all created under Kennedy. For many in the world, this was cause for hope. Many newly independent nations were joining a non-aligned movement and preferred to not have to choose between the West and communism, and they had great hopes that Kennedy would direct American policy towards supporting their independence movements. To Eisenhower, programs like the Peace Corps were costly endeavors that achieved very little and threatened to break the U.S. Treasury. He also felt that introducing a more flexible doctrine of deterrent actually made war more likely. He felt that if the threat of nuclear war hung over every decision, all players were less apt to be aggressive. If anything, having more options and deterrence at more levels would increase the likelihood to any or all players using military force, making war more likely. But these new policies showed how much faith Kennedy had in a more active government to better tap America's resources and abilities. He felt that it was the responsibility of the president to make it happen. Kennedy was an ambitious president with an ambitious agenda. He felt that dynamic leadership and energetic government was critical to winning the Cold War, and that America had been missing this kind of leadership under Eisenhower. Historian John Milton Cooper once compared Kennedy to Theodore Roosevelt both men believed that the president had a unique role in spurring on national greatness. It's why Roosevelt pushed through the creation of the Panama Canal and the Great White Fleet. It's why Kennedy called on America to go to the moon by the end of the decade. But like many ambitious men, he very quickly found himself bumping up against a harsh reality. Kennedy may have wanted to align American foreign policy with the hopes of the Third World, But those hopes found their limits just 90 miles away from the American shoreline. In 1959, the autocratic Cuban president, Fulgencio Batista, was overthrown and Fidel Castro took power. Although Castro had not initially described himself as a communist, he began nationalizing industries and aligning with the Soviet Union. Americans were alarmed. It seemed like the Soviets were on the march. Just a few years earlier, in 1957, the Soviets had conquered space. Now they had a friendly regime right on America's doorstep. Then President Eisenhower was a major proponent of what was called the domino theory, which basically said that the fall of one country to communism would lead to the fall of more countries. So he embargoed Cuba and authorized a covert CIA operation to overthrow Castro. By the fall of 1960, in the thick of the presidential election, the CIA was working with U.S. Marines to train Cubans who had been exiled from the Castro regime. They were being trained to launch an amphibious invasion to topple Castro. Early on, when it wasn't clear whether Castro was pro- or anti-communist, then-Senator JFK initially thought Castro might be one of those third-world freedom fighters and someone the U.S. could cultivate a relationship with. But when Castro's pro-Soviet sympathies were revealed, Kennedy changed course he started to attack Eisenhower and Nixon for, quote, losing Cuba, for being passive as the communists spread into the Western Hemisphere. At the same time, after Kennedy's election in November 1960, when the Eisenhower administration prepared to hand over power, the plot to overthrow Castro started to fizzle out. Eisenhower's National Security Council warned that even if Castro was toppled, it wasn't clear who would replace him. The day before Kennedy was inaugurated, On January 19, 1963, he met with outgoing President Eisenhower. Despite all of the doubts about the Cuban operation, Eisenhower recommended that JFK approve it once in office. Eisenhower was a wily statesman. Historian James Giglio speculates that by doing this, Eisenhower could claim some credit if the operation succeeded, while still being able to disavow it if it failed. Now, Kennedy had a different management style from Eisenhower's. Eisenhower was a general, and he established a clear chain of command. He delegated tasks authoritatively, and made strong use of the bureaucracies at his disposal. Kennedy was much more informal. He hated bureaucracies and processes, and relied on a small group of advisors. Rather than delegate, he centralized control of his foreign policy. His closest advisor was his brother Bobby, who he had made attorney general of his administration few attorneys general had ever had a wider portfolio. He involved himself in political and foreign policy decisions. But this early on in the administration, Bobby wasn't involved in the operation to overthrow Castro. The CIA plot continued under Kennedy, but this time he didn't have the benefit of alternative advice from proper bureaucratic channels. JFK sent an informal observer, a colonel named Jack Hawkins, to Central America where the CIA was training the Cuban exiles so that Hawkins could get more information on what was going on. Hawkins reported to Kennedy that the plot would succeed. The CIA ran the plot exclusively. The military, the Joint Chiefs, the Pentagon, none of them were really involved. JFK was not inclined to challenge the CIA. He was said to have been in awe of the agency. Under Eisenhower, the CIA seemed to be everywhere in the world, silently undermining communism. Kennedy didn't think he had to question their advice. A number of very credible people warned Kennedy against the operation. Harry Truman's Secretary of State Dean Acheson was concerned that the Cuban rebels would be outnumbered by Castro's forces. Senator William Fulbright feared the invasion would appear to the world as an overaggressive move by the United States. Ambassador John Kenneth Galbraith thought it was too risky. Kennedy wanted to minimize the appearance of American involvement, giving him plausible deniability, and make the invasion look like it originated with the Cuban rebels. So he reduced the CIA's operational role. The United States commenced an initial airstrike against Castro's defenses on April 15th. The invasion of the Bay of Pigs in Cuba began on the 17th, What ensued was one of the biggest foreign policy blunders in American history. Once the airstrikes began, American involvement was obvious. The invasion force of 1,400 Cuban rebels found themselves confronted by tens of thousands of Castro's men. The United States had underestimated the strength of his forces. By April 18th, it was clear that the invasion was failing. JFK canceled further airstrikes. He felt that the only way to salvage the operation was for the United States to take full control, and he wasn't willing to do that. Now there's some dispute here about the events. Kennedy aide Ted Sorensen maintained that JFK reinstated the airstrikes, but bad weather rendered them ineffective. Either way, the new president had waffled. He had shown fatal indecision in the midst of a military operation. The CIA was beside themselves. CIA Director Alan Dulles felt that the cancellation was the cause of the invasion's failure. But the CIA officer in charge of the invasion, Richard Bissell, disagreed with Dulles. He felt that the plan was doomed from the start because the CIA had underestimated Castro's forces. Either way, when it was all over, about 1,200 of the rebels had been captured, and almost 500 were killed or wounded. Kennedy's efforts to hide American involvement had totally failed he had lost all claim to plausible deniability. Just three months into his presidency, Kennedy had an embarrassing failure on his watch. It was a crushing blow for the new president. He felt personally responsible for the deaths of hundreds of rebels and the capture of thousands more. The invasion had alienated the world community, especially Latin America, where the United States was denounced as an imperialist nation. It also worried European allies who wondered if America had the resolve or capability to stand up against the Soviets. In an era like the Cold War, it appeared to show a chink in the armor in the face of strong opposition from the Soviet Union. Some historians believe that the Bay of Pigs failure led Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev to see Kennedy as a weak amateur president. In the midst of the crisis, a humbled Kennedy turned to the man he had implicitly criticized for over a year but a man who, more than anyone else, was able to offer some wise counsel, his predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower. After all, if anyone knew how to plan an invasion, it was Eisenhower. Just days after the failure, he and Eisenhower met at the president's getaway in Camp David. According to historian Evan Thomas, Kennedy lamented to Eisenhower that, quote, somewhere along the line, I blundered. He noted that, quote, everyone approved, the JCS, the CIA, my staff. Eisenhower commiserated, but also gently pressed Kennedy with pointed questions. He got Kennedy to admit that the Joint Chiefs, his top military advisors, had approved the operation reluctantly. Eisenhower, from years of experience and familiarity with the plans for the invasion, had an idea of what happened. He knew that it was a CIA operation and that the Joint Chiefs had signed off without a thorough enough review of the plans, because they knew that the CIA would be held responsible in the event of failure, and not them. Eisenhower had been involved in the planning, yes, and even recommended Kennedy move forward with it, but it's unlikely that the architect of the Normandy invasion would have carried it out the same way. He told Kennedy, quote, There's only one thing to do when you get into this kind of thing. Make sure it succeeds. Kennedy responded saying, quote, anything like it in the future will succeed. Eisenhower responded, saying, quote, Well, I'm glad to hear that. Kennedy had his staff do a postmortem on the invasion. The new president knew he had made a number of mistakes, and some of them had to do with how he managed his staff and how he received advice. In Kennedy's mind, the CIA no longer had that aura of invincibility. He never quite trusted them again. According to Ted Sorensen, Kennedy said to him, quote, All my life I've known better than to depend on the experts. How could I have been so stupid to let them go ahead? He also told his friend Ben Bradley, quote, The first advice I'm going to give my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that because they were military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. He would be more willing to question the judgment of the experts. He also decided to lean more on a trusted group of advisors. The closest of them was his brother, Bobby. The Attorney General would soon become the second most powerful man in the country. JFK painted the best possible picture about what had happened for the American people. On April 20th, he gave a speech where he said, We intend to profit from this lesson. We intend to intensify our efforts for a struggle in many ways more difficult than war, where disappointment will often accompany us. The next day, JFK gave a press conference where he refused to discuss the failure in depth, but he did allow some sense of his own culpability in the incident. He famously said,
6: There's an old saying that uh, victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan.
0: And then he awkwardly added,
6: But I will say to you, uh, Mr. Van Oker, that uh, I've said uh, as much as uh, I feel can be usefully said by me in regard to the events of the past few days, through the statements, uh, detailed uh, discussions, are not to uh, conceal responsibility because I'm the responsible officer of the government, but merely because I, uh, and that is quite obvious, but merely because I do not uh, believe that uh, such a discussion uh, would benefit us during uh, the present uh, difficult uh, situation, but. Uh, As I say, I think you'll be informed, and uh, some of the information, based on what I've seen, will not be accurate.
0: Strangely enough, Kennedy's rambling response worked. His approval rating, according to Gallup, at 78%, increased to 83% by the end of the month. Even if Kennedy committed a major blunder, most Americans were willing to forgive him, especially if he was trying to overthrow a communist regime. Kennedy, amused at the spike in his popularity, said, quote, the worse I do, the more popular I get.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.
0: America's communist foes celebrated the debacle. A few months after the invasion, Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara reportedly taunted Kennedy with a message that thanked him for the invasion and proclaimed, quote, Before the invasion, the revolution was weak. Now it's stronger than ever. And then there was Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. We met Khrushchev in our last episode on Eisenhower, where he came to power in the years following Stalin's death in 1953. When Khrushchev took power, there were hopes that he would move the Soviets away from confrontation with the West and towards some sort of reconciliation. Both he and President Eisenhower we were looking to forge an arms agreement to reduce the threat of nuclear annihilation, but their hopes were dashed when an American U 2 spy plane was shot down over Soviet airspace in 1960. By April 1961, Khrushchev was about 67 years old, old enough to be Kennedy's father. He had survived the purges in the Stalin era. He was erratic and boisterous. He made bombastic statements on the global stage, sometimes in comical fashion. Twice, he had issued threats for the United States and its allies to vacate West Berlin, the hotspot of the Cold War. At the time, both Germany and its capital Berlin were divided up between the Soviet Union and the United States. In both the city and the country, the eastern section was occupied by the Soviets and the western part by the United States and its allies. The problem was that Berlin was in East Germany, so the western sectors in that city were deep in the heart of East German territory. Its supply lines vulnerable to Soviet coercion. Khrushchev once crudely said, "Berlin is the testicles of the West. Every time I want the West to scream, I squeeze on Berlin." This put Kennedy in a bind. He wanted to show that the United States was committed to defending Berlin, but he also feared that doing so would risk confrontation and perhaps lead to war. He decided that perhaps a meeting with Khrushchev would help ease tensions. A summit in Vienna, Austria was scheduled for early June 1961, less than two months after the Bay of Pigs debacle. Kennedy prepared tirelessly for the meeting. In our previous episodes, we covered conferences between American presidents and Soviet dictators. You'll remember that they're usually difficult, frustrating, and fraught with tension. By then, Franklin D. Roosevelt's meeting with Stalin and Churchill at Yalta in 1945 had become infamous. Critics assailed FDR for what they described to be his selling out of Eastern Europe. Eisenhower met with the Soviet leaders in Geneva in 1955 and proposed a major nuclear inspections initiative, but it was rejected by Khrushchev. If history was any indication, the odds were stacked against anything positive coming from the summit. You have to imagine what Khrushchev thought of Kennedy. Any hardened survivor of the Stalin era might have trouble seeing the young, inexperienced president as his equal. And you have to think, after JFK's strongly anti-communist inaugural address and his attempt to wipe out the Moscow-friendly government of Cuba, Khrushchev was under some pressure to be tough on him. Kennedy's advisors warned him not to allow Khrushchev to draw him into a debate, especially about ideological matters. It would just give Khrushchev an opportunity to unleash his usual hyperbole. But that's exactly what happened. At Vienna, Khrushchev started the summit by lecturing Kennedy, berating the United States for backing, quote, old, moribund, reactionary regimes, while ignoring the hopes of newly independent nations in the third world. He said that the Soviets would not be intimidated by the United States, even if it surrounded the Soviet Union with military bases. JFK hoped to find some common ground by broaching the subject of nuclear war and the need to avoid it. Kennedy later said, quote, I talked about how a nuclear exchange would kill 70 million people in 10 minutes, and he looked at me as if to say, so what? Kennedy's aide, Kenny O'Donnell, said that the Soviet leader was, quote, circling around Kennedy and snapping at him like a terrier, shaking his finger. Khrushchev spent almost all of the summit Rhetorically pummeling Kennedy on the world stage. Paul Nietzsche called the meeting, quote, just a disaster. Khrushchev himself later described Kennedy as, quote, too intelligent and too weak. Kennedy and Khrushchev did get around to talking about a number of issues. Liberals back home hoped Kennedy would get some sort of ban on nuclear testing. There were fears that these tests were harming the environment and increasing tensions, making nuclear war more likely. Kennedy broached the subject, but Khrushchev rejected it because a ban would require intrusive inspections. They also discussed a general disarmament treaty, but made no real headway. The reality was that neither side was in any rush to play nice, especially since JFK was under pressure to not look soft on communism in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs. They talked about the nation of Laos where a conflict was brewing between communist and anti-communist forces. It was yet another arena of cold war competition between the superpowers. Khrushchev taunted Kennedy, asking, quote, "What business did the US have claiming special rights in Laos?" There was little progress made by Kennedy and Khrushchev on finding a solution. Finally came the critical discussion on Berlin. Khrushchev acknowledged that the situation in Berlin was tense and that a long-term solution was needed. But for him, the solution was simple. The Western nations should leave their sectors in West Berlin. This was unacceptable to Kennedy. Khrushchev insisted the onus was on the United States, saying, quote, It is up to the U.S. to decide whether there will be war or peace. In response, Kennedy said, quote, Then, Mr. Chairman, there will be war. It will be a cold winter. Kennedy left the summit feeling defeated because he knew that he had failed to project a strong image. Moments after he and Khrushchev parted ways, he called it, quote, the roughest thing in my life. He went on, saying, quote, he just beat the hell out of me. I got a terrible problem if he thinks I'm inexperienced and have no guts. Until we remove those ideas, we won't get anywhere with him. Kennedy's hopes for a reduction in tensions were dashed. If anything, the summit in Vienna caused heightened tensions, and both men felt the need to strengthen their hand. Kennedy soon requested and got an increase of $3.25 billion in defense spending, a tripling of draft calls, a call-up of reserve forces, and a boost to the nation's civil defense program. Eisenhower's new-look policies were now dead with Kennedy's boosting the defense budget. For his part, Khrushchev increased Soviet defense spending by a third and resumed above-ground nuclear tests. And in August of that year, the Soviets began building a wall in Berlin that would divide the city in two.
5: The line of demarcation in the Cold War lies in Berlin. West Berlin, with its burgeoning prosperity, is a thorn in the side of the Reds. Refugees from the East escaped by the tens of thousands until the communists in desperation threw up their wall of hate to seal off the border. In a decade, more than four million East Germans fled their homes, causing a drain on communist Germany's economy that was called no longer tolerable. Their answer, the wall. Now entire families are separated. Their only communication, a wave from a distance. This is heartbreak. This is the poignant drama not found in the reports of diplomats. A bride in the east can only wave to her mother in the west. She takes her vows in public loneliness. The border is strengthened, but still they escape. She hangs from a second story window. The red police try to pull her back. The Westerners try to free their grip. East Germans grasp any fleeting chance. A guard's back is turned, the barbed wire is slashed and Westerners stretch forth willing hands to pull them to asylum. They gamble that a sudden rifle shot won't end their dreams, that a slip won't bring disaster. Freedom is man's most prized possession and it is only for those who love it.
7: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
0: Earlier, I mentioned how JFK felt that the United States should align its policies with the aspirations of the third world. Kennedy saw the Third World as the major battlefield in the Cold War. And I mentioned how this raised hopes among nationalist movements around the world that Kennedy would be a different president from Eisenhower, that he would reorient America towards their interests. Well, Kennedy had several regions in the world to contend with as the leader of the free world. The Congo was a major problem. In June 1960, the Belgians granted its African colony independence. Unfortunately, They hadn't prepared the Congolese much for independence, with democracy, and not much political infrastructure for self-rule. The Belgians also maintained control of the mineral-rich province Katanga. Factions within the Congo began fighting. The pro-Belgian faction was trying to declare Katanga independent and friendly to Belgian interests. Patrice Lumumba emerged as the leader of the Congolese national movement. He was young, barely 35 years old and he became Prime Minister of Congo soon after independence. He had asked then-President Eisenhower for military support against Belgium, but Eisenhower declined, not wanting to get America involved in a situation where the country seemed to have little interest. Lumumba then reached out to the Soviets for help. The Eisenhower administration, with its with-us-or-against-us approach, thus labeled Lumumba a communist, or at least aligned with the Soviets. Things got violent between the various factions. The Congolese government requested UN troops, which entered Congo to help restore order. But pro-Belgian factions soon initiated a coup, some say with CIA help, to overthrow the government, including Lumumba, and to create a military dictatorship under strongman Joseph Desiree Mobotu. Lumumba was arrested. By then, the Congo was in the midst of a civil war, Kennedy feared that any instability could give the Soviets a reason for intervening and getting a foothold into Africa. He also knew that his support for third world nationalism would be put to the test. African nationalists hoped that Kennedy would support the anti-Belgian Congolese and press for Lumumba's release. To their disappointment, but perhaps wisely, Kennedy took a cautious approach upon entering office. He called for a coalition government inclusive of the different factions, and he was publicly quiet about Lumumba. He didn't call for his release. He wouldn't commit American troops in support of Lumumba's cause. Also, he knew that America's NATO allies were Europeans friendly to Belgium. He didn't want to put those countries in a tight spot by supporting one of Belgium's former colonies. Kennedy hoped that the introduction of UN troops could help solve the problem and stop the fighting. African nationalists felt let down by Kennedy's cautious response. In February of 1961, Kennedy got some bad news. Lumumba had been assassinated by Katanga officials under Mobotu. He had been executed by firing squad. Again, some say the CIA was involved. Throughout the next couple of years, fighting continued in the Congo, and power swung back and forth between competing factions. JFK sent a token force in December of 1962, mainly in support of the UN mission. The United Nations was able to suppress the Katanga secession and bring some form of order to the country. The rival groups began negotiations to create a new constitution. Kennedy gambled that the UN forces would be effective, and it paid off. He had focused on keeping the peace in the Congo while avoiding direct intervention. He had succeeded to some extent, but African nationalists were sorely disappointed. They had been hopeful because of Kennedy's campaign rhetoric that he would incorporate their aspirations in American foreign policy. Reality was showing that Kennedy's promises would be hard to fulfill. Since 1954, Egypt had been ruled by one of the major leaders for Arab nationalism and a major opponent of Western colonialism. That leader was Gamal Abdel Nasser. Nasser was at the height of his prestige, He was an icon for unity across the Arab world, a movement that crossed national boundaries. As we learned in our previous episodes, Nasser had a bad relationship with President Eisenhower because of the Egyptian leader's initial neutral stance in the Cold War, his role in the Suez Canal crisis, and his subsequent relationship with the Soviets. As was his wont, Eisenhower saw him as pro Soviet. In 1958, Nasser attempted to make his nationalist dream a reality when he unified Egypt and Syria into the United Arab Republic. By 1961, however, Nasser was becoming disillusioned with the Soviets and feared that the Soviets might sponsor a communist takeover of his own government. Kennedy sensed an opening. Unlike Eisenhower, Kennedy believed that Nasser was a pragmatist, not a socialist-leaning ideologue. He hoped that a rapprochement with Nasser could help increase America's influence in the Middle East vis-à-vis the Soviets. But things quickly got more complicated. In October of 1962, Nasser's supporters stirred the pot in the Middle East. In the fall of 1962, a pro-Nasser revolution in Yemen under Abdullah As Salal rose up and toppled the royalist government of Ahmad bin Yahya. Two other major Arab nations— Saudi Arabia, and Jordan feared the spread of Nasserism, so they supported Ahmad's government. Nasser's United Arab Republic dispatched 70,000 troops to Yemen to prop up the pro-Nasser forces. Before long, Yemen was in a full-scale civil war, with Egypt on one side and Saudi Arabia and Jordan on the other. JFK feared the spread of violence throughout the region. He was also in a bind the U.S. had close relations with Saudi Arabia thanks to their oil reserves, but he also had been courting Nasser. He was now afraid of alienating both sides. Instead, Kennedy tried to split the difference to find a balanced solution. He affirmed the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, writing to its King Faisal, You may be assured of full U.S. support for the maintenance of Saudi Arabian integrity. He tried to get a deal in which all sides would pull out of Yemen but JFK also tried to show Nasser a sign of friendship, so he recognized the Nasserite rebels as the new Yemeni government. This, not surprisingly, angered the Saudis and the Jordanians. Nasser escalated the conflict. He ordered his military to hit targets in Saudi Arabia, specifically in the city of Najran, right by the Saudi border with Yemen. Kennedy, very much alarmed by these actions, feared the conflict could spread to the broader Middle East, and as always, there were fears that this would lead to a confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union. Moscow had its own interests in the region. In fact, Khrushchev told the new Yemeni government, quote, any act of aggression against Yemen would be considered an act of aggression against the Soviet Union. As things got worse, Kennedy, remembering American dependence on Saudi oil, then tried to mollify the Saudis he also hoped to deter Nasser from getting too aggressive. He wanted to counterbalance the Egyptians, so he sent an air defense squadron to aid the Saudis. And he also sent the 6th Fleet to the eastern Mediterranean to deter Nasser. Understandably, this led to tensions between Kennedy and Nasser. They were further strained when Israel indicated that it felt threatened by Nasser, leading Kennedy to publicly affirm his support for the Jewish state. Nasser began turning away from the United States for support and back to the Soviet Union. The Yemeni civil war would continue past Kennedy's presidency to the end of the decade. It would turn into a stalemate that sapped the resources of all involved. By the end of the 1960s, the new Yemen Republic would emerge victorious at a high cost to Nasser and Egypt. The Arab nationalist would later call the entire adventure a miscalculation. Egyptian historians look back at Nasser's adventure in Yemen as their Vietnam. Kennedy began his presidency with the hopes of bringing Nasser into the American orbit. While he managed to keep the crisis from becoming a superpower confrontation, his hopes to strengthen ties with a third world nation, once again, crashed hard against the realities of geopolitics. Kennedy's challenges were only the beginning. In the fall of 1962, he would face a crisis that would dwarf all others in his presidency. He entered office with great ambitions, to rejuvenate the United States and affirm its leadership in the free world. But the presidency would test his abilities far beyond what he could have possibly envisioned. Soon the fate of the whole world would rest on his shoulders. How he handled these burdens under the specter of nuclear war is the subject of the next episode of This American President. To learn more about John F. Kennedy, check out The Presidency of John F. Kennedy by James Giglio. President Kennedy, Profile of Power by Richard Reeves, and Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. Special thanks to Jennifer Mazella for her contributions in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts, Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President.
4: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies, big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures.